University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. We'll take a look at the second book of Samuel, chapter 6, verse 13. We're in the home stretch of our 2020 vision series, which is um, a way of us looking at sometimes it's a challenge to see clearly where God is leading. And sometimes when we don't see things clearly, we don't step boldly forward in faith because we like precise outcomes. We like for things to be made known to us. And yet Jesus invites us to trust in the Spirit of God, to trust that God will lead us where we need to go and to become the people that we need to become. The 2020 vision follows alongside our strategic growth initiative, and one of the particular aspects of the, of the strategic growth initiative is a diversifying worship experience. What does that even mean? Well, for that, we turn to the context of our passage. Now, First and Second Samuel could be given a different name. It could be called Raiders of the Lost Ark. That makes five weeks in a row now, by the way. And the reason why is the Ark of the Covenant was created during the period of the wilderness and the wandering and contained the Ten Commandments, some of the manna that God gave, a worship ephod, and the staff of Aaron. You see, the significance of the ark was it represented to the people God's physical presence among them. This was the physical manifestation of God's presence among them. Therefore, it was the most sacred object of their faith. Except in the book of First and Second Samuel, the ark becomes the centerpiece of drama because it's stolen and then taken back. It's stolen and it's taken back. And this happens again and again. There's a fascinating story in which the Philistines stole the ark. It's placed before one of their temples and a statue in front of one of their gods. And it says that the next morning when they came in, their god was broken up into pieces on the ground. And yet the ark remained. And so David has conquered Jerusalem. He has unified the kingdoms together. And now what he wants to do is he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the center of the kingdom. And the first attempt at this doesn't go well. We learn of a guy named Uzzah who reached out to stop the Ark from falling and he struck dead. And so a period of mourning and discernment go about and David is now ready to try again ready to bring the ark of the Lord to the sitter of Jerusalem. And it says this in verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and fatted calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, while he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. Skip down to verse 16. As the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Skip down to verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, 
how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servant as any vulgar fellow would. Now there's a lot to unpack here, so let's try to do that. We immediately learn that David in their text actually has quite a broad resume. We know David as a shepherd boy. We know him as a giant slayer. We know him as a mighty warrior and beloved king. We know him as a conqueror of cities, but now we know him as a half-naked worship dancer. What everybody wants added to their resume. It's not every day that you see someone dancing in worship. It's especially not every day you see a king dress half-naked in worship before his entire kingdom. And I can guarantee that if I had come in here on Sunday morning dressed and dancing like David, there would be one of several responses that many of you would have. Number one, an immediate expulsion of all of your breakfast food on the floor, instant tears at horror, the loss of one's own religion, or maybe the deepest belly laugh that you can imagine. There's a lot going on in this passage, especially the reaction of David's wife, uh, Michael. Let's not forget that her father and brother were just killed in battle in order for David to become the king that he is today. Lest we not forget that David had a proclivity towards many wives, we are only two chapters away from the great Bathsheba passage. We're going to come back to Michael's response here in just a moment because we need to not lose focus of the significance of this moment for the Hebrew people and David and God. You see, David is at the height of his success, power and fame, and David chose to bring God into the center of his city. This is a metaphorical and theological speaking. David wanted God to be at the center of the Hebrew people's new capital. Therefore, the Ark of the Covenant had to be brought into this place. Theologically, it is, it is preaching a message here. And in just one chapter, David is going to beseech God to let him build a magnificent temple in honor of God. And yet, God will say to David, no, it'll be your son Solomon who will do this. But David doesn't just stop there. You see, the act of bringing God's presence among the people to the heart of the city, to the center of his throne, was an assembly of honor and glory. This was a, a parade of celebration and music, and reading, and sacrifice, down to the detail of how the law of Moses instructed the ark to be carried, David made sure that it was filled with honor, and glory, and worship on this day. And for David, this, this was not just merely anything that he would just do. This was so important that they did this the right way. At the paramount of his rule, he wanted God to be at the center, because that's what worship is about. God is the central focus and purpose of our worship. And doesn't that seem obvious? But, and there's a big but. For over 20 years, my, my father brought season tickets for the Carolina Hurricanes. And for those that aren't familiar with that franchise, that's the National Hockey League team in Raleigh, North Carolina. And for nearly 20 years, our family went to sometimes several times a week to a hockey game. And occasionally, I would take friends with me to go to the game, except I quickly learned which friends were worth taking and which friends I would never ask again. You see, it was all determined by one thing, whether or not they wanted to talk to me during the entire game. No, seriously, if I had to spend the entire game turning my head away from the ice to answer yet another question it would be a reason I would never invite them to come back to the game. 
You see, we didn't spend all this money on season tickets so that I could not watch the game. We spent this to be physically present in the game, to enjoy the elation of high fives when the Canes scored, game, scored a goal. See, what if I told you that the culture of worship across America is just like this in far too many churches? We allow too much to distract us from whom and why we come to this space. The very thought of God not being at the central focus and purpose of our worship seems such an unthinkable thing. Yet how often do we find that we nitpick about the content and worship, whether or not it was the music we wanted to be selected, the music style, the sermon, the way that communion is served, what one person in the choir is wearing on a particular day, that something in the worship guide or in the slides is misspelled, the songs that we are singing don't match the songs that we thought we were supposed to be singing in the order of worship. How long is this thing to be going on? How long is he going to keep talking? We find so many things to distract us in worship. I've seen far too many church members and other churches that choose to protest attendance at worship as a way to stick it to the worship leader or the pastor that they don't like. As one author put it, we say, it's not what I grew up with. The music doesn't speak to me. I'm not being fed by this, or we evaluate musically and lyrically the content of worship. Don't get me wrong, I hardly ever matters what the music style is, whether you prefer hymns or CCM or instrumental or Gregorian or uh, acapella or classical or jazz, all of us do the same thing. Much of what our music is is musically uneducated. Our grumbling has nothing to do with music. It goes on to write, our problem is that we enjoy bemoan, criticize, celebrate, and judge church life based on what we like, not if it's about God. I realize that some of the statements I just made might be perceived as stepping on toes, or hitting a nerve, or judgmental, or unkind. Yet this is what we find Michael doing in the text. She is so incensed by what David is doing, by what he is wearing, by what seems to be a complete uh, uh, disregard of his role as the king, she misses out on the purpose and focus of this day, of this moment, and of this profound theological act. Are we missing out on the true purpose and focus on worship? Have we gotten so disconnected and so elevated in our criticism that we can't see through the fog of why we do what we do? Have we made worship so much about us that we have forgotten why we do this in the first place? The text picks up in verse 21. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you have spoken of, I will be held in honor. And again, there are some of the greater implications beyond our focus of what's going on in the text between David and Michael. But there is something to be said in this text about what we need to grab onto. David declares, I will become even more undignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. David uses uh, the Hebrew word here, uh, kualal, which means to be cursed, to be despised, to be undignified, degraded, or humiliated. 
You see, the word used here is the same word used when it said that Goliath hurled insults at David when he stepped out to face him. David was the most successful king in all of Israel's history. He was the champion of the people. He was a giant slayer. And he was not only willing to be physically removed from his royal vestments, but to be utterly despised of himself for the sake of God's honor. And when this is challenged by his wife, he said that he would go even further if it means that God would be honored through this. So does that mean we need to worship like David? Is, does it mean that undignified worship means that we should be dancing in the streets half naked? Does undignified worship mean that we have to be loud and active? You see, there's other verses of scripture that bump against this when it talks about that we should worship in a dignified way, and with dignity, we should worship in such an orderly fashion before God. So maybe this text is not to worship God in an undignified way, but being willing to be undignified for the sake of God's glory and honor. If worship's purpose and focus is supposed to be about God, then how might we enter into this space differently? How undignified are we willing to be for the sake of God's glory? And what is the end game of our undignifiedness? And yes, I just made up a word. One of the clues to this answer is found back in verse 17, which we skipped over. It says this, They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed a burnt offering and fellowship offering before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and worship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israel, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. You see, the significance of this day is not about an egotistical God that needs recognition. Instead, what we see through the actions of David and the priest, is to turn worship into an, a living act of love. They bless the people. They pray a prayer of hope and fortification and prosperity over them, and then they provide for the people's physical needs by throwing them a party, a celebratory meal of God's bounty. What I take away from this text is that undignified worship spills out of the sanctuary and into how we live our lives and how we care for others. Worship is not merely about singing or dancing, but an entire lifestyle of the worshiper. Being undignified is about regularly making God-centered, self-humbling choices in every aspect of our lives. As Paul wrote to the Romans, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. What Paul is urging his readers, what David is modeling in our passage, what Jesus is inviting us into is to honor and glorify God by the way that we think and speak and treat other people outside of a sanctified one-hour time slot on Sunday mornings. Worship is about work and relationships and habits and goals and dreams and interaction with other people. But in order to worship God in an undignified way, I think we have to do so in a way that transforms our lives. What if we're doing worship all the wrong way? 
What if what we thought we were supposed to come in here for, to feel good about ourselves and to live our lives as we are currently living, is not what worship is about? What if David's story teaches us that worship is supposed to be transformational? As one author put it, worship is the focus, not the worship service. The distinction is sometimes hard to see until we think about the things people sit in their seats are trying to do is in fact trying to control God. Worship changes our lives. If our lives don't change, we are not spending much time with God. We're not truly worshiping God. Worship makes us countercultural. Worship is the belief and act of centering our lives on God instead of ourselves and our other gods we create. You see, what we do in the space and the time that we have together should transform and empower us to be like Jesus. As Augustine put in City of God, to love his neighbor bids him to do all he can to bring his neighbor to love God. This is the worship of God. This is true religion. This is the kind of devotion. This is the service which is owed to God alone. So what we need to do in the space should transform us, should change our lives. And I wonder how our faith would grow and how our relationships with God would deepen if our, if our worship shifted to an undignified manner. There's a fascinating passage in the book of Revelation in which John is supposed to be brought up into the throne room of God and he, he's, he's trying his best to describe all that he sees. And he says there's this being seated, seated on the throne that is just enveloped in all of these beautiful colors of green and red and orange and blue. And he says around the throne are, are these 24 other thrones and there's these 24 elders some say this represents the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament. And he says that these, these saints around the throne all have their white robes on and their golden crowns on their head. And he says even around the throne there's these four creatures that seem impossible to understand what he's saying. He said one's like a lion, one's like an ox, one's like a man, one's like an eagle. He's trying to say that these creatures are prowling around the throne with such fiercity. And yet out of these creatures' mouth, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So these fierce creatures are prostrating themselves and declaring praise to God. It says that these 24 elders are taking off their crowns. They're placing it at the feet of this being. They're worshiping this God that is at the center of all things. And what John is trying to describe to us is, is ask the very question of what else matters except to be in the presence of this creator. What else seems to matter John says nothing else seems to matter except to fall down and to worship God. When I was a kid, I asked my papa one day what heaven was going to be like, and he responded, what, do you think you're going to go there sometime soon? <laughs> he proceeded to tell me that the Bible tells us that uh, heaven's going to kind of be like a worship experience, like a church service, I asked. Well, something like that, he said. Well, that sounds boring, I replied. <laughs> I don't want to do that for that long. Scriptures describe 
eternity as this worship experience. And if, if most of us were honest, we don't want to spend an entire eternity like we spend a one-hour church worship service. And I'll say that to be heretical or offensive. What I take from the book of Revelation and the other passages, they're trying to describe that eternity is about living in harmony and honor of our creator, not a corporate worship service experience. And one of the ways we do this is by thinking intentionally about the time we spend together as a faith community. And while we've seen from our our text that, that worship goes beyond Sunday morning, yet it raises the question of how our corporate worship can bring honor and glory to the one seated on the throne, as John describes. And depending on the tradition you were raised in, worship had a certain rhythm and rhyme to it. There were various forms of music and formats and styles and prayers and offerings and maybe even a second offering. I literally preached in a church once where they collected the offering and the pastor got up and said, no, 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 y'all didn't put enough in the plates. We're passing that thing around again till they're full. You see, something about worship seems so different and you might say, well, I want to worship like a Baptist. Well, as a church historian, I can tell you that's not easy to pin down because there's literally thousands of ways of being Baptist. Some say they want a certain style of music, whether, quote, traditional or contemporary. Some say they want a certain style of worship, whether liturgical or experiential or reflective or emotional. Some say they want an invitation at the end of every worship, a calling of people down front so a decision can be made. Some say they want this. Others say they want that. And we can turn to tradition and history and find that we can't find the answers there. Because worship is constantly changing. The way we worship 20 years ago is completely different than the way we did 40 years before that. We're not that far removed from being mainly viewers or spectators of worship by only sitting and kneeling, watching the professional priest do their work. You see, what worship should look like doesn't get any clearer when we look at the scriptures. In the Old Testament alone, did you know that there are seven words to describe worship and each one describes something different whether it be kneeling or raving or clamorous or foolish or shouting loudly or singing or dancing or acting out of thanksgiving or clapping of hands or playing of instruments or kneeling in supplication or prostrating yourself in reverence at the ground and we're just getting warmed up here The New Testament's not even more clear because the New Testament describes uh, worship as expression or confession or reflection or transformation. So therefore, what does that tell us about worship and what it should be? I recently had one of the greatest culinary experiences of my life. I made a peanut butter and banana sandwich, which is wonderful by itself, and then I added spicy habanero honey to it. Mine, blown. See, this was the first peanut butter and banana sandwich I had had in quite some time because I, in fact, had gotten burnt out on PBB sandwiches because I literally had them every single day, day after day after day for many years. You see, there's something when you have something over and over again that all of a sudden the deliciousness and the gift that it is day after day, it loses its flavor, it loses its meaning, it loses its significance. In fact, health experts say that you should diversify your diet 
When you don't, your body changes the way it metabolizes foods, your risk of food allergies go up, and your likelihood of sickness goes up as well. Your body needs a diverse diet. So that's why I added spicy honey instead of regular honey to my peanut butter and banana sandwich. Some of y'all are looking at it like it's gross. If it was good enough for Elvis, it's good enough for me. Except he added mayonnaise to his, and that's just disgusting. So maybe the last thing we should take away from our text is that undignified worship is wonderfully diverse. Worship was intended to be a place of both majesty and mystery of God. What if worship is supposed to be a balance of sacred rhythm and predictability with unpredictable holy mystery? No one is trying to say that we should throw logic to the wind and start handling snakes here on Sunday morning. But how often do we enter into this space knowing exactly what is going to happen with no anticipation or expectation of surprise except that maybe Andy might say something edgy or offensive out of his mouth? Maybe worship is supposed to look and feel different each time we experience it because we are created by a wonderfully diverse and mysterious God. What if God expects out of us that we gather not in routine predictability, but openness and receptiveness to something beyond what we can know and comprehend? Maybe worship is just like what it means to follow Jesus. Believing in Jesus is harmless and risk-free, but following Jesus changes everything. As one author put it, rethinking how we do worship begins then with keeping the focus on God, as God is in all of God's complexities, now how we want God to be from the beginning to end. It seems entirely that worship looking first and foremost is to offer something to God, no matter how we feel or how the service makes us feel. For our time of reflection and response this morning, we invite you to enter into a conversation with the person next to you. We have a few suggested questions up here on the screen. What does it look like? What does a successful worship look like? And how might UBC be undignified for the worship of God? We invite you to turn to the person next to you or someone else and simply have a conversation on these questions.